Thank you for downloading this episode of This Jewish Life. This is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby from Torch. And if this is the only podcast that you listen to, I want to inform you that we actually produce a bevy of podcasts on a variety of Torah and Jewish interests. There's the Parsha podcast, which goes through the Parsha, the portions of the Torah, week by week, every Sunday. There is an episode that's uploaded on the entire Parsha, going through it from beginning to end and pulling lessons and themes and insights as we go along. And every Wednesday, there's a second Parsha podcast as well on one specific issue of interest on the Parsha. There is also the Eternal Ethics podcast. That's the podcast where we study the Pirkei Avot, the chapters of the fathers, the ancient book of Jewish ethics and Jewish personal refinement and the original book of Musar. We go through a Mishnah by Mishnah, teaching by teaching, discussing the great luminaries and their invaluable and relevant lessons. There is the Jewish History Podcast. If you are a history aficionado or if you just are curious to know how the Jewish people got to where we are and what are the great personalities and great themes and trends of our history, check that out. And finally, there's the Torah 101 Podcast. That is an intellectual's introduction to Torah. If you want to approach the issue logically, reasonably, understand everything you need to know about what Torah is and how do we know it's divine, etc., what's the relationship between the written Torah and old Torah, that is the podcast for you. Soon we, hopefully, please God, will be adapting this to a video series, so keep your eye out for that. And don't forget to check these all out. In the description of each podcast, you'll find links to all those other podcasts, and they could also be found on my website. I also want to thank those who have donated to our organization, Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston. In 2017 in particular, there was a swell of donations from people who live far away from Houston, but connect to us and to our organization through the podcasts. And without the ongoing support of our students, our friends, our partners, we could not continue our efforts. And each one of y'all who have contributed, you're really partners in everything that we do. So thank you. You are keeping this wonderful organization humming. And every podcast, there's going to be a link in the description to our website, torchweb.org, where you can submit donations. And I ask you to consider helping us in our efforts to connect Jews and Judaism. Finally, please don't hesitate to reach out to me by email or Facebook or Twitter with any comments or questions. The email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. That too can be found in the description of each podcast. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Over the last couple of months, there have been various allegations, revelations, accusations of sexual misconduct by all kinds of celebrities and all kinds of people in power and all kinds of people in media and journalists and actors and directors and all that. And it kind of spawned all kinds of movements and all kinds of slogans. And there's the Me Too button and the hashtag Me Too. And I think it kind of did spur some sort of national conversation about proper conduct, what's right, what's appropriate. I wanted to give my two cents on this because I had an idea uh, over Shabbos that I think I think it's, I think it's a nice take on on this issue. I don't usually talk about like things that happen in the world or I certainly don't talk about politics or pop culture, but I think this is it's a it's an opportunity to talk about something from the Torah's perspective. 
Talmud asks the question, how come in the Torah and in the order of the Mishnah and the Talmud, there's two portions that are juxtaposed to each other? There's the portion of the Sota. Sota is an instance where there's a case of adultery. There's infidelity. And then there's the portion of the Nazir. The Nazir is someone who accepts upon themselves a vow to become a Nazir, which includes, amongst other restrictions, not to cut their hair, not to come in contact with dead people, not to drink wine. And the Talmud asks the question, like, why are these sections next to each other? And the Talmud tells us an interesting idea, which I think is a, one of the core fundamental principles of Musr. The Talmud says that if someone sees a sota, if someone sees a, an instance of suspected adultery, they themselves should make themselves into a Nazir. Why? A Nazir, someone who refrains from wine for 30 days, or a minimum for 30 days. And if someone sees someone else who has made a blunder and suspected or otherwise of infidelity, you have to take steps to guard yourself. And this is how the plan words that I'm going to do. You have to say, well, it could happen to me too. And it's very, it's very natural for us when we see bad conduct in other people, it's very natural for us to contrast that with our good conduct. I, I would never do that. But that's, that's something. Look, look how terrible Hollywood, what kind of bad morals. Where's the righteousness? Where's the good character? That's, of course, natural. And maybe it's, it's justified. But I think the Talmud tells us that the, the Musa out, out attitude is to always take everything that we encounter and say, and take lessons to ourselves. I can change myself, I can't change other people. And therefore, I, and I should try to change myself. And in addition, when you see evil in other people, you have to take steps to guard yourself that you don't fall into those same uh, mistakes. And therefore, you see the Sota, you have to say, this could happen to me, it could happen to me too, and what can I do to, pre- to prevent myself? I think it's a good opportunity to look at some of the Talmud's teachings, the Torah's teachings, about how we ourselves could take steps to shield ourselves from making these kinds of blunders. And I think it's, I think it's interesting. Maybe a year ago, if you wanted to talk about this, it sounds arcane. You know, it sounds draconian. Well, what do these rabbis know about workplace romance in modern times? That, I think that maybe that would be a critique people would have a long time ago or a year ago. But I think given the climate, that has resulted in the past couple of months, I think it's an opportunity for us to listen and hear what, what the Torah says about how these things develop. And then we can understand why some of the laws, so to speak, of the, some of the Torah laws that are there to prevent that, why they are the way they are. So what I found, I assembled this, maybe this problem, I'm sure there's more, there's more sources. I found four sources that really all seem to say the same thing. And they talk about how there is a progression. And we think it's very easy to look at the result, at the action, at the behavior that is at the end. What the Torah uncovers for us is that an action is a result of things that happened beforehand. And frequently, it's the things that happened before that, beforehand that trigger the ultimate action to ensue. And therefore, the way people think about a given problem is they try to solve the problem. But 
what the Talmud here is telling us is that the problem that they're trying to solve is really the symptom of the real problem. If the real problem is at a much earlier stage and that's ignored and you try to stamp out the symptoms, you're actually not going to treat the underlying problem. So there's an interesting model that the Talmud builds for us, and I'll give you a bunch of sources to, to corroborate that corroborate this point, that actually there is a process through which a person goes or people go that results in something at the, at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. It's not a switch. I think most people or the national conversation, and I, I haven't researched this so exhaustively, but I just pick up from what I encounter that the conversation I think is, is misguided because it's trying to solve the problem at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, but not really stopping it from beginning. And if you assume it's a switch, it's a yes or no, so to speak, then you try to address it on that level. Whereas if you recognize that there is many steps of progression that lead to a certain result, and thus if you nip it in the bud, then you're actually going to solve the problem. So I want to read you four sources here from the Talmud. This maybe could have been organized in any order. First one is from the book of Avodah Zarah on page 20b. It quotes a verse in Deuteronomy. The verse in Deuteronomy says, chapter 23, verse 10, V'nishmarta mikol davar ra. You should guard yourself from every bad thing. Seems like it's good instruction. It's good, good advice, right? Guard yourself from every bad thing. Says the Talmud, what does that mean? Don't think something by day to come to impurity by night. Again, this is the introduction to the subject. We're told is that when you have to guard yourself from something bad, you have to realize that the something bad, you may it may begin by day, so to speak, but it will end at night. And this is, it's a little bit of innuendo here, but it's saying that the thought by day is absorbing a certain attitude that will only play out at night. And thus, the thought by day starts what is going to end and result at night. Your thoughts by day are internalized and they germinate and they grow and they and they could change your behavior by night. And if you want to just you want to solve the night problem, you actually have to treat it by solving the day problem. And therefore you're supposed to protect yourself from all bad things. How do you protect yourself from all bad things? Don't allow it to get started. Don't even allow the beginning of this progression to begin. The second source is from the Talmud in Baba Basra on page 57b. And it quotes a verse in Isaiah. And the verse in Isaiah is lauding someone. A person who does all kinds of good things. It's giving him all kinds of compliments. And one of the things that it says that this person does is they close their eyes from seeing bad things. One of the compliments it gives to someone who's so righteous and so holy, they close their eyes from seeing bad things. So what does that mean? So the Talmud says, that this is someone who does not look at women at the time where they are doing laundry. So apparently, the women used to go, they didn't have laundry machines back in the day. They would go to the river and they would wash their clothing in the river. But they would be exposed in a way that the, the men walking by would want to look at them. Thus... When someone's being complimented by not looking at this immodest sight, they say they close their eyes. 
then therefore they don't see any bad things or things that could be bad for them. The Talmud asks the question, wait a minute. What's the case here? Someone's walking by the river, right? They're obviously going somewhere. So if there is an alternative route, so they could have walked by the river, and they know by the river there's a bunch of ladies there washing their clothing. They could have been gone a different route, Main Street instead, instead of the River Street, and they chose this route, then they're a wicked person. The Talmud even adds, by choosing the route that you walk or that you traverse, that in itself is the beginning, it's the action. And Talmud even says, like, if someone chooses this route, the route that could potentially go by immodest displays, that in itself, even if they don't look at anything, they don't ogle at any of the women, they overcome, they close their eyes. But they don't ogle, so what? But they chose the route, that is already the opening of the door. The activity that is totally unrelated to any of the things that may lead to me, that may lead me, let me lead, right? But it's the first choice that someone is the first fork on the road where they could choose. Do I go this way or do I go that way? By just merely choosing to go the way that could potentially lead to them seeing something which could lead to something down the road, again, that choice itself is what determines if they're a tzaddik or if they're a rush, if they're righteous or the wicked. Because the righteous choice is to recognize that the way the Yetzirah needles in to a person is not brashly. It's done a little bit at a time, right? It, it, it burrows, it burrows into someone's heart and thus allows things to progress from there. And therefore, you have to stop it before it even gets started. Not even the sin itself, but the choice of which way to go to avoid the dangerous area. Amazing idea of the Talmud here. And it goes so far as to say that if someone chooses, they could have gone a different way, and they just choose this, and they don't even look. They close their eyes once they get there. They actually close their eyes. But they chose that path. That already shows there's something wrong with them. A third source in the book of Shabbos on page 105b. And it's telling us about someone who rips their clothing in their anger. Someone gets really angry, and there's a tendency, I'm so angry, I want to just smash stuff. So they rip their garments, or they break their vessels, or they take their money, they're so upset, they just chuck their money out the window. Someone like that, says the Talmud, you treat them as if they're idolaters. Why would you treat someone who does that, does destructive self-harm during anger? Why would you treat them as an idolater? Well, what is the what is their behavior for doing idolatry? Says the Talmud. That is the craft of the Yetzirah. This is exactly how he works. Today, he tells you do this. Tomorrow, he tells you do that. Until he tells you to do idolatry and the person obediently obeys. Again, we see that this is the process. The process that the Yetzirah works is not sin or don't sin. It's do one thing. And this is not so bad. And this is not so destructive. This is not so terrible. You're not doing idolatry after all. You're angry. Okay, let out your anger. Like, let out your frustration on something. So why would someone do that? They're destroying their own property. They're not recognizing that the Almighty is there and overseeing everything. And that their anger is something that they have to control. Once you open up the slightest room for the Yetzirah to operate within you, they're not going to stop. The next day they'll say something else, the next day something else, and eventually everything that he wants you to do, it wants you to do, you will become 
subject to its whims. You'll be under its dominion and it will be your internal master and tell you how to behave. But again, we see there's a progression. And finally, the verse that we say in the Shema, third paragraph of Shema, it says you should wear a tzitzis on the corner of your garment and it should be tzitzis and you should look at the tzitzis you remember all the mitzvahs of God. You should perform them and you should not deviate after your hearts and after your eyes. What does it mean? Look at your tzitzis and do not deviate after your hearts and after your minds. So Rashi says, what does the heart and the minds have to do? The hearts and the minds, they're spies. They're facilitators of sin for the body. Why? The eye sees something and the heart desires it and the body does the sin. There's a uh, axis of evil here working against a person's soul. And they look at something, they desire it, and then they act upon their desire. The correct way to stop this, if you read the verse, it doesn't mention don't sin. It says don't let your eyes and your heart deviate you. Why does it not say, why does it say don't sin? So the answer is, is that because the verse assumes is once your eyes and your heart are against you, once they're pushing for sin, you already lost the battle. It's over. Because right? the, then the, the sin is just a perfunctory result of everything that's already happened. And thus, if you really want to stop it, you have to stop it before the answer makes a beachhead in your soul, in your heart. Before you allow the portals of your eyes to absorb uh, the desire and then to influence your heart. And once that happens, it's already too late. You got to stop it before that. And that's the tzitzis, the they represent us being pulled closer, closer to God and away from the Yitzvah, away from the danger. And thus, by doing the mitzvos, says the verse, we will sidestep this whole process. But again, we see it's a process. And therefore, I think this kind of really explains, if you think about a lot of the Torah's laws about the separation of the sexes, for example. The Talmud says, every place you find separation of the sexes, you find holiness. To us, it sounds... Oh, it sounds so ancient. It's so old-fashioned. You know, let the boys and the girls be together. Now, interesting, in my, in my children's school, so the boys and the girls are in the same building. I, I went to school. Boys were in one building. Girls were in another building outside of, outside of town. The smaller Jewish community, a smaller, smaller school, you, you don't have that luxury. Therefore, the boys and girls are together. But because, thankfully, our school in Houston, Texas, is growing really nicely, in the earlier grades, the first, second, third grade, there's enough kids to separate them into two, two classes, a boys' class and a girls' class. 15 boys, 15 girls, separate classes. Whereas in fourth grade, they still have a, a mixed class. So I have one son in fourth grade and one son in third grade. And it's interesting is that even in fourth grade, the boys and girls are together, but really there's like a natural segregation that actually happens. It's like a, it's not because it was mandated. They're in the same class, but there's just natural segregation. It's interesting, like the Talmud says, every place you find segregation of, of the sexes, you find holiness. And like to us, like it sounds so old-fashioned. Women today in every community, they're exposed to the world and it's a diff- it's a different reality. We, we're not trying to turn back the clock to the medieval times. But there still is this idea that separation of sexes is, is, is a good idea. And I think given the Talmud's attitude that we see is actually true, like it's, it's naturally true as to what 
triggers mistakes and errors and acts of infidelity, for example, that are almost impossible to recover from. What triggers that? It's just all those steps that led to the eyes seeing and the heart desiring and taking the one path and allowing the situation to develop in a way that such an event can happen as a result. I, I, I want to read to you, there's, there's a Rambam here. He's an amazing advice uh, regarding shielding oneself from sin. And he really hits this nail on the head again and again. And he, and he addresses this point again and again. If you recognize the progression of sin, you realize that the logical step is to stop it before it gets out of hand. I want to read to you just the last four halachas, laws, in the Rambam has 22 chapters on the laws of prohibited sexual acts. At the end, he gives advice. And I want to read to you here what he says. There's nothing in the Torah that is as difficult for the majority of the nation to abstain from, like matters of forbidden relationships and prohibited um, sexual interactions. And he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says that when the Jewish people were taught these laws, Moshe teaches the Jewish people these laws, everyone started crying because they were all sad. And then he says that there are certain mitzvos, there are certain prohibitions, that is, that a person really desires them. And he lists them. Of course, the Talmud. Talmud says that theft and illicit promiscuity, these are things that uh, people really covet and desire them. And you don't find any community in any time that there weren't at least some people who were promiscuous in these matters. Moreover, he quotes the Talmud again, the majority of the people have infractions of theft. The minority of people have infractions in illicit promiscuity. And everyone has infractions in avak lashon hara, in lashon hara, but not real full-fledged lashon hara, but kind of disparaging speaking about other people. That's what quotes from the Talmud. So now, just as an aside, when you take a paperclip from your office, according to Jewish law, it doesn't matter if you take a paperclip or you take $500 million, right? if you're taking something that doesn't belong to you, it's actually a problem. But anyhow, that's that, that, that's, that's what it means, that everyone has infractions with theft. And therefore, says the number, what's the solution to this problem? Therefore, it's appropriate for a person to compel his yetzer hara, evil inclination, and to accustomize himself with holiness, with increased holiness, and with pure thoughts and proper outlook in order to save yourself from them. And you should also be careful with yichud. Yichud is the word for seclusion. There's a law in the Torah that men and women are not, are not allowed to be secluded with each other. Says the Rambam, you have to be very wary about the laws of seclusion because this is the greatest cause for these kinds of sins. And he quotes the stories from the Talmud in the book of Kedushin. The greatest scholars, they would announce, don't leave me with my daughter, don't leave me with my daughter-in-law because I don't want to have yichud with them, I don't want to be secluded with them because I don't know who knows what could happen. Now, why would the greatest scholars say that? Because they want to make sure that people should not be embarrassed of saying that. Don't say, oh, what are you, so holy? Yeah, you're any better than me. Like, he's what People would say that. People would make snide, disparaging comments even then. And therefore, the greatest rabbi would say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make it so therefore no one will be embarrassed to say that because they recognize how valuable it is. And therefore, to teach the students not to be embarrassed from, the, from this matter 
and to distance themselves from seclusion. Says the Rambam. What actually triggers many of these forbidden sexual activities is not people are desirous of sinning on that level. Rather, they don't observe the laws that try to stop it before it gets started. And there's a whole corpus of laws with respect to seclusion, what kind of seclusion is allowed, what kind of seclusion is not allowed, with who we let have seclusion, etc. Stop it before it gets started, and you'll avoid many of the things, the concomitant sins. And additionally, he adds, you should distance yourself from frivolity and from drunkenness and from other matters that cause this kinds of things, and there's many levels of these kinds of things. And also, you should, he adds, don't be a bachelor for forever because that's not going to contribute towards you being holy. And finally, he, he concludes, the greatest of them all is if you focus your mind and your thoughts on words of Torah and broaden your heart in matters of wisdom, because if there's no thoughts of illicit promiscuity unless the heart is devoid of Torah. And thus, if you fill the heart, the heart complete with Torah, there's no room for anything else to make a foothold in your heart. So again, the Rambam's in his advice of how to prevent uh, promiscuity doesn't mention promiscuity at all. He says, don't have seclusion, don't have frivolity, don't have drunkenness, and study lots of Torah. Because he recognizes, and the, the, what the Talmud recognizes is that actually what contributes to these moral breakdowns, they're way before the moral breakdown in effect actually happens. And I think given this perspective, it's no surprise that we see the laws, of the, the Torah laws from antiquity, from a long time ago. These weren't stuff that were invented after August of last year. A long time ago, that they reflect this attitude. For example, it is prohibited by, by Torah law for a person to be alone with a member of the other sex, whether they're Jewish or not, whether they're married or not, whether they're old or young, it doesn't matter, for a given amount of time. How that amount of time is, it's a, anywhere between a minute, it's about a minute, even 30 seconds like on the more stringent side. It's, it's prohibited by, by Jewish law. Now, what if someone is secluded, but they don't do anything? doesn't matter. Again, the law itself moves the boundaries. It, it, it's pushing the boundaries and saying, this is what's prohibited now. This is a classic example of offense around the Torah. Now, some of these laws are actually in the Torah. Uh, some of them are, are rabbinic. But the idea of stopping it before you get, like, don't allow people to go and hug the nuclear bomb. Have a fence around it. Right? And everyone, everyone tries to stop people touching from the nuclear, going nuclear. Instead, they should take this attitude and understand the context of these laws, stop it before it gets started. So these are some of my thoughts. Uh, maybe it's not my place to mouth off on events happening in the greater public sphere. But I, I do think that this, I think it's a good opportunity. If the great rabbis are telling us, I don't want to have seclusion, what the great rabbi is going to sin? No, it doesn't seem likely. These are, these are highly accomplished people who work really hard to achieve perfection. But the attitude that they had, and the attitude that we're encouraged to have in the Talmud, is that it could happen to you. You don't know. We all have a Yetzirah, and the Yetzirah is steaming day and night. The story goes that the Chafetz Chaim, the great sage uh, who passed away in 1933, 
he was, he used to say that in the morning he woke up and it was really cold. He lived in Russia. It was really cold. And he didn't want to get up and go dive in Shacharis in the morning. So his Yetzirah tells him, he says, ah, you're so old and you're so tired and you woke up so early. Just go back to sleep for a little bit. That's what his Yetzirah says to him. So he responded back to him, I'm old, but you're even older. <laughs> I woke up early, but you woke up even earlier to try to get people to sin. And that's, of course, a clever story. But the idea is, is that we cannot rest on our laurels and assume that bad things won't happen to us or bad things of our doing will happen to us. No one could say that they're, that they're free, that they, they, they don't have a Yetzirah. In fact, the Talmud says the greater someone is, the more potent their Yetzirah is. Actually, the greater scholars and the greater people who – they have actually a, a parallel Yetzirah. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fair, right? If someone has a weak Yetzirah and they're so much stronger spiritually, then there's no free will. And therefore, the greater someone is, the greater the Yetzirah is. And therefore, we have to follow the instruction of, of the Talmud. When you see something bad happen to other people, it's an appropriate time for you to say, how do I take steps to prevent me, myself, this happening to me too? And I think we have an attitude that we see in the Talmud. Stop it before it gets started. As many stories that affect, as many laws that affect, I would advise everyone, if they can, to get access to some of these laws, to see them and to understand the value and the relevance of them. And hopefully, we too will live a life of holiness, of righteousness, and not, God forbid, make any grievous and grave blunders that we will regret and will uh, hamper our life in every way.